if you're just doubting because, well, everybody around me thinks something else, or I don't really like what the Bible says on some of the issues that people are pushing me on, well, is that a reason to doubt? Not not necessarily. It might be a reason to ask more questions to better understand yourself, but just be honest with yourself about the nature of truth that you want to pursue what is true, not what you like the best or not what you want to be true, but what is actually true. Hey, well, welcome to the Decision Point podcast. I'm your host, Mark Hopson, president of Decision Point, where our mission is to proclaim the gospel to the next generation till every student has heard. And hey, today we want to talk about standing for Christ in a culture that is more and more against Christ and all that we hold dear uh, in our values and our beliefs as followers of Christ. And to help us with that today, we're so excited to have Natasha Crane with us uh, today. Natasha, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for being here. Just to introduce you to students who may not be familiar with your work, uh, Natasha is a national speaker, uh, author, blogger, and podcaster whose passion is to help Christians think more clearly about holding to a biblical worldview in the midst of an increasingly hostile and secular culture. So her message is so timely today. Uh, I read her latest book, Faithfully Different, uh, Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture uh, in the last couple months. And I got to tell you, it was fantastic, Natasha. What a great book you wrote. No, oh, thanks. I appreciate that. I that I hope that it will be helpful to the body of Christ. That is that's my greatest hope in writing, right? It's not just to put words out there, but to hope to actually make an impact. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, before I share with our students some of the things I loved about your book, tell us maybe what were you hoping to accomplish? What were some of your goals that you were hoping to accomplish with your book? Well, I think the subtitle really says it all in terms of my goal. The subtitle is regaining biblical clarity in a secular culture. And that's really what I want to help Christians do because the, the impetus really for this started in 2020 when there was a lot that was going on in culture, obviously, and there were a lot of uh, social justice things that were going on, especially where Christians were starting to get confused by what was going on. People weren't really sure, you know, should we lock arms with these groups? Should we not lock arms? What does biblical justice look like? And so I started writing articles about this question on my blog, and these became the most popular articles that I had ever written. They were going viral, and they were liked and shared by tens of thousands of people. And I thought, wow, there's really this need, this hunger to really separate for people. What is a biblical worldview? What is a secular worldview that surrounds us? And how are we being impacted by that? And so that's why I wrote Faithfully Different, really, is to help Christians understand this whole idea of worldview, which we can get into if you'd like, and what does it mean to have a biblical one versus a secular one? That's that's my hope, that Christians will stand firm because they understand what their worldview should be and how it differs from the culture around them. That's amazing. You know, um, one of the things I loved about your book was just how much ground you covered. I couldn't believe how much you covered. I mean, you have 12 chapters. Every one could be a book of its own. But you get yes. in and out of each chapter like thoroughly like I'm, you know, you really do deep engagement on each topic that you cover. But then you just cover so many topics from uh, what problems are we seeing in the culture today? Uh, what problems are we actually seeing? How are we seeing those creep into the church today? What are what is the biblical truth? How do you articulate it? How do you defend it? 
And man, to cover that much ground so thoroughly and so concisely at a really high level, but then also to me accessible. Like I think any student listening to the show today needs to just go home and and buy it on Amazon today or tell mom and dad, hey, if you want me to you know, still be a Christian tomorrow, you should buy me this book because, <laughs> you know, and then how are they going to say no to that? Uh, so thanks for writing it. I was right, really encouraged. Put the high pressure on. High pressure. So <laughs> and then, hey, if there are any parents listening, I um. I haven't yet finished it, but your other three books, would you just mention those? Because I did buy one of them and I started reading it and I'm looking forward to getting through it kind of as, you know, my wife and I now have uh, four kids of our own. Could you mention some of the great books that you have out there for parents as well? Yeah. So before Faithfully Different, I had written three books uh, specifically for parents and they're apologetics books to equip the parent to understand how to teach your kids how to make a case for and defend the truth of Christianity. So each of the books covers a series of questions. My first one is called Keeping Your Kids on God's Side. That covers 40 different questions that, that your kids will be challenged with today. The second book is Talking With Your Kids About God. And that one is specific to God level questions. So how do we even know that God exists? What is the nature of God? How do we think about God and science? So these big picture God questions, and that covers 30 questions. And then the third book is talking with your kids about Jesus. And that is all the Jesus specific questions. So things like how do we even know who Jesus was as a person in history? How do we know that Jesus is God? What is the meaning of Jesus's death? How do we know Jesus was raised from the dead bodily and historically? So it goes through all of those questions at the Jesus level. So across all three books are a hundred different questions and just easy to understand chapters are all four to five pages each that parents can use to first get equip themselves, and then second, have those conversations with their kids. Uh, that's amazing. So before we get too much into your uh, book, Faithfully Different, I'd love for people just to get to know you for a minute. I mean, you're a highly accomplished person. You're, you've been interviewed on outlets like Focus on the Family, and you're a host of uh, the Natasha Crane podcast and also co-host of the Unshaken Faith podcast. Um, you've got degrees from UCLA and USC uh, you were a marketing executive. So just tell us, can you just tell us a little bit more about yourself? Uh, how did you get to be where you are today? Yeah, well, it was kind of unintentional. I definitely did not set out to be a writer or a speaker. I grew up in a Christian family. I never walked away from my faith or anything like that. But uh, when we had kids, I decided that I wanted to start a blog in 2011. I had three kids who were three and under at the time, and everyone was doing blogs then. It was kind of <laughs> <laughs> it was it was just the trend. And so I thought, you know what, that would be kind of fun. It's a good way for me to write posts about what we're doing with our very young kids to raise them to know who Jesus is and and to, to help them learn to love the Lord, basically. And so I thought it would be a community where I could meet other Christian bloggers and have this kind of online group that was really hard to accomplish as a mom with really young kids at the time. So I started writing about Christian parenting topics. And after a while, the blog was increasing in popularity. People were sharing it online on social media. And that started bringing skeptics to my site because they would see things that people would share and they would come to my site and they would leave comments on my blog, just challenging everything that I was talking about. And to be clear, I was not looking for any of these kind of conversations because even though I grew up as a Christian, I never was challenged in my faith like this. I hadn't heard about these kinds of questions in church. I never really thought so deeply about them, to be completely honest. And I didn't know what to do with them. People were saying things like Jesus never existed as a person in history. The Bible's filled with errors and contradictions. Uh, science and God can't coexist. Science has put God out of a job. I mean, all these kinds of things that are kind of the traditional challenges, as I now understand them 
them to be to Christianity. I just wasn't prepared. And I realized that my kids were going to need a completely different upbringing than I had because of the world that they're living in today. And many of your listeners are facing that too. It's not enough to just kind of read a devotional every day and and hope that that's going to teach you what you need to engage. There's a lot more that we have to be prepared for. We need to be ready to give a defense for our faith, as 1 Peter 3.15 says, with grace, right? We, we want to do it in a loving way, but we do need to know why is there good reason to believe that Christianity is true. So that's what I became passionate about. Once I started encountering all of these challenges, I learned what apologetics was, how to make a case for and defend the truth of Christianity. I set off to just learn everything that I could. I went on this super intense reading journey for the next couple of years. And then I turned my blog into a place where I was educating other Christian parents on the same question, saying, hey, this is the kind of stuff your kids are going to get challenged with today. This is what you need to know. And that eventually led to me writing those parenting books. And then most recently with Faithfully Different, I stepped out of just that parenting zone and I'm writing for a broader audience of of all Christians. But that's kind of the long and short of my journey. That's amazing. Thanks for sharing that. It must be fulfilled. I hope it's fulfilling to you today to see how many lives the Lord's actually allowing you to minister to. I I, I kind of chuckled when you said you started blogging when you had three kids, three and under. I, uh, <laughs> we've been there as a family, and uh, it's not like that's an easy time to start a blog, but here you were <laughs> faithful to just do something different, uh, not to play with the title of your book, and now the Lord's turned that into a, a wonderful platform for you to minister on a really broad level. That's amazing. So, okay, Natasha, I want to get into your book just a little bit here. Um, you talk about the new normal of how, okay, so the secular culture is really, at, at least in the Western world today, uh, affecting the church in ways that uh, maybe it wasn't 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago. Uh, could you help us understand from your perspective, what is the new normal today that students, uh, maybe like 15-year-old students find themselves living in and they don't even know that it is a new normal? Yeah, that's a good point. I think for a lot of times when I'm talking to parent level generations, we do talk in terms of new normal because things have changed and shifted so much. But this is just the status quo for most of the students who are in school today. This is just what they know. But depending on the degree to which they have had exposure outside of the church, you know, kids have very different experiences depending on whether we're talking about, you know, a public school education versus a homeschool education, private school. I mean, it's all over the map. But one thing that I think that everyone should understand every student should understand, is that Christians who have a biblical worldview truly are in a small and shrinking minority today. So if anyone's not familiar with that term worldview, let me just explain what that means. A worldview is the lens through which you see all of reality. So every single one of us has a worldview, whether we consciously arrive at that or not, everyone has a worldview. So it's how you answer these basic questions in life, like, where did we come from? Why are we here? Is there an objective purpose to our lives? What happens after we die? Is there a God? All these questions, we all have these answers to, and that's going to inform how we see everything around us. This informs everything about how we see the world. So as Christians, we want our worldview to line up with what the Bible teaches, because if the Bible is God's word, it is from God himself, then obviously that's the truth that we want our beliefs to conform to. Otherwise, you're just believing falsehoods. So Christians with a biblical worldview, that's what I'm saying, make up a very small percent of America today. And I can give you a couple of statistics. And I talk a lot about numbers in the book. If you're a fan of numbers, you would like that kind of research. If you're not, I'm going to boil it down to two data points that yeah, I think do everybody that. needs. The data points you gave in the book, uh, numbers don't lie. 
And it, it really does help tell a clear story. So yeah, what are your two data points? So the, the first one that people should understand is that when you survey the American population at large and you give them a list of things that they might identify as in terms of their religious beliefs, so you give them Christian, Muslim, Jewish, Mormon, atheist, agnostic, or researchers even have a category for nothing in particular. If you give people a list of those things, what you will find at least as recently as a couple of years ago when they last did this major research, is that 65% of Americans say that they're Christians. So in one sense, people hear that data and they think, oh, well, what are you talking about with you know a small and shrinking minority? That doesn't make any sense. 65% of people say that they're Christians. But you have to understand, and this is so important for students to know, that when you say 65% of people are Christians, all that means is that 65% of people apply that label to themselves. So they could mean all kinds of different things when they say that. You can have people who kind of, you know, haven't really thought much about their faith, but they kind of have a family that's loosely Christian. And so when the researcher calls up, they say, Christian, <laughs> put me down for Christian, right? And so there, you can have people all over the map saying Christian. What's really informative for us, though, as Christians is to know what people believe. Because when you actually get to the level of beliefs and not just how do you label yourself, then you start to understand much more of what's going on in culture. So researchers at Arizona Christian University's Cultural Research Center have documented this through their research, this worldview inventory that they're doing every year. And it's headed by Dr. George Barna, who has been doing research for many, many years on this for 40 years plus. And so a lot of experience in this. And what they've found is that when you give people dozens of questions to ask them directly about their beliefs, and then you let the researchers categorize that, or you let the researchers take their answers and say, okay, this person's beliefs line up with what the Bible teaches. This person's beliefs would line up with Mormonism. This person's beliefs would line up with atheism. When they go through and do that process, the big reveal here is that what they find most recently is 4% of Americans have a biblical worldview. 4%. 4%. So when you actually look at what people believe, it's only 4% of the people in this country whose beliefs overwhelmingly line up with the basic truths that the Bible teaches. So this, this should be a really important thing that every student should keep in mind. And I tell my, my young kids this all the time right now, because when you understand that the majority of Americans identify as Christian, but very, very, very few actually have a biblical worldview, you start to realize that you need to have extreme discernment <laughs> whenever you hear the word Christian. That means if you see a quote unquote Christian church, you better be looking at the statement of faith to see what do they actually believe. If you see that someone is a Christian singer, that doesn't necessarily mean that they believe the things that you would expect them to mean based on what the Bible teaches. If you go to a quote unquote Christian book section in a store, don't assume that those are actually teaching you anything that's true according to what the Bible says. If you meet someone who says they're a Christian, don't assume you have any idea what they believe today. And that's not to say, all this is not to say, hey, be so skeptical and walk around with a chip on your shoulder. It's not that. It's it's about discernment, though. And it's the reality of the situation that we're in today that far more people say they're a Christian than who actually hold the biblical beliefs. So we got to be aware of that. And we've got to be discerning and constantly searching scripture to understand what the Bible actually says, because that's what's true. That's what's God's word. That's a sobering drop off from 65% to 4%. Um, I think numbers don't lie, but also you can be kind of like me and think, okay, really, that's a that's an awful big drop off. Is it really that bad? Um, but help us understand some of the questions that maybe 
self-proclaimed Christians failed with that research? Because, I mean, George Barna, he was making it really down to the minutia, right? You had to be a predispensational, pre-trib kind of person to pass his test, right? I mean, it was a really high bar to get the biblical worldview right in his test, right? No, no, actually it's not. And that's important to understand because that's what a lot of people assume. A lot of people say, oh yeah, you, you know, you have to answer like, you know, this litany of questions exactly right. Know these details from the Bible. It, it's not like that at all. So the questions that they ask are on, they're not on secondary issues. So it's not anything that would be specific to a denomination. It's nothing about your end times views. It's nothing that would get down to those secondary issues for Christians. These are primary questions about your view of the nature of God and does absolute truth exist? Does hell exist? Is the devil real? Uh, questions about basic questions about morality that the Bible teaches. They have not released the exact questions because that's proprietary research that are actually working on releasing a publicly available uh, version of this. Um, I don't know what the current status is. They were supposed to recently release it recently, but I know they've had some technical issues on that. But these are these are questions that uh, that every Christian should be able to answer if if they have their beliefs that line up with what the Bible teaches on this particular research. And uh, it, and actually, if anyone's really super interested in the research, if you're a data nerd like I am and you want to hear more about how they do it, I interviewed Dr. Barna in depth on my podcast on the Natasha Crane podcast in September of uh, 2022 last year. And so you can go and you can find that episode. But I think the one big takeaway from that that I don't know I've ever seen them uh, published publicly that he talked about on my podcast is that in order to qualify as having a biblical worldview, you only have to answer 80% of your responses that line up with the truth of what the Bible says. So, you know, when you hear these low numbers and everyone thinks, oh, it must be so hard. It must be impossible to have a biblical worldview. It's not at all. And that's what makes the numbers so uh, so grim, in a sense, because it's not. You only have to have 80% of your beliefs actually line up with what the Bible teaches. So it's it's an interesting thing. And and when I talked to, uh, to Dr. Barna, one of the things we did talk about was, you know, is it 4%? Is it 6%? Because I, the research at the time of Faithfully Different said 6%. And at the end of the day, the story is the same. You know, there's also always research variants. There's also always, you know, you know, is it 5%, 7%? Depends on the specific survey. But the p- picture is the same, that the vast majority of Americans do still say that they're Christian. And some tiny percent of those people, whether you want to say it's 5% or even 12%, if the survey was way off, no matter what, you're still getting the same picture that very few people have their beliefs line up with what the Bible teaches. And you asked an interesting, as part of that, you asked an interesting question, which is where do Christians kind of go wrong (laughs) on these? Like, where are they getting questions off? And they actually released some of this research too. And you can go to their website and you can see all these different studies, Arizona Christian University Cultural Research Center. And just a couple I would highlight to give people an example is that Many, many Christians who otherwise might have a biblical worldview say that they believe people are fundamentally good. Okay, this is this is just very much a secular idea that Christians are bringing in because the Bible is very clear. We're not fundamentally good. We are by nature children of wrath. We are in rebellion to God and his purposes and his will. So we, the Bible is very clear about this all the way through that we are not fundamentally good, but Christians have bought into this this view of culture, and they believe that. Another one is that Christians overwhelmingly believe that uh, that having faith is more important than what faith you have. Oh my! Which faith you have? So yeah, you can't you can't read the Bible and you can't and you can't get that out of it because we can have faith in 
anything. Faith just means that you trust in something. So I could trust that behind you is a unicorn. I could have faith that that is there. That's not valuable faith. There, there's nothing inherently good about that kind of faith. And yet so many people will talk today as if faith is just this elusive great thing that you know we want to have. We want to take this blind leap in the dark. Well, no, the Bible doesn't call us to take any kind of blind leap in the dark. The Bible calls us to have a reasoned faith. So the kind of faith that we want to have is trust based on what we have good reason to believe is true. That's a very different kind of faith. So it doesn't matter what kind of faith you have. Yes, of course it matters. It's not that the Bible is just like, you know, have faith in something, have faith in anything. No, we want to have faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and put our trust in him because he is worth putting our trust in. The unicorn idea is not. So this is just a, a a really outlandish idea that a lot of Christians have. And so you can go, you can see the research on all of this, but there are a lot of those kind of basic theological questions that Christians should understand if they're reading the Bible, but overwhelmingly we don't. So that's a long answer to, to the question, but I do want to make sure that people understand that it is not a survey where they're getting into all kinds of secondary um, in the weeds issues that only people who have been you know, to seminary can understand. It's not like that at all. And unfortunately, overwhelmingly, we find that Christians are not answering those questions in line with the truth of the Bible. Well, that's a bleak picture, but it's it's helpful to get clarity on where we're at. You, you almost made me do a double take just to make sure I don't have a unicorn behind my shoulder, by the way, but I, I'm not <laughs> buying it, Natasha. You're not fooling me. Uh, I, I don't, I don't buy that. Um, so, okay. We're, we're, we got our work cut out ahead of us as Christians today in the church. I think that helps us know we better make sure we're not drifting. Uh, you know, I share with our staff a lot and, you know, we've been looking at what's going on in culture. I mean, how many times, even in the book of Hebrews, the Bible tells us to p- take careful stock of ourselves, lest we drift from the faith. And I think it's such an important command. Obviously, if God said it, it is. But the, I mean, the nature of drifting, um, you usually don't know when you're drifting, that you're drifting, unless you're actually paying careful attention to it. I, I was in a, you know, I lived in LA for 10 years. I was there for a summer when I was a kid. And I remember uh, I was probably 12 years old at the time. I don't know what beach we were out there in LA, but all of a sudden the lifeguard started shouting to us and waving towards us. And before we know it, he's swimming out there towards us. And without knowing it, we had been drifting, you know, and he had to come out and tell us, hey, you're drifting. You guys got to come back in. The tide's taking you out way further than you should be. And you got to come back to shore, you know? And so I think that is in, these data points help us see like drift is happening all around us. Uh, people don't even know it. So we better make sure, pay careful attention, Hebrews says, lest we should be drifting as well. And I think your book and and your show are doing a great job of helping people do that. Uh, Natasha, you also do a great job of helping define the secular worldview that's out there. And there's a lot of ways you can do that. I, I loved your fourfold framework. I actually quoted you in a message to our students this summer because I like to help our students think about the different, like the true gospel, but then also the false gospels that are out there. And so you talk in your book how, this is my words, the false gospel of secularism has four key beliefs. I'd, I'd love to just share these and then have you just expound on it if you would. But you say, okay, secularism does a, says happiness is the ultimate goal. Uh, feelings are the ultimate guide, uh, judging is the ultimate sin, uh, and God is the ultimate guess. And I thought, man, that is, that's what we're up against, isn't it? So can you maybe expound on that for us? Yeah. So when, in, in Faithfully Different, I talk about how if we want to really characterize the nature of secularism, the secular worldview that surrounds us, it's really about the authority of the self. 
So, so much of these worldview issues, the distinction really comes down to who's your authority? Who gets to decide what is true about reality? What is good or bad, right or wrong, harmful or helpful? Who decides that? Is it God or is it you? And what you see when you look around at culture today is that overwhelmingly people are saying, hey, it's me. <laughs> I'm the one who gets to decide. I am the authority. And so in the book, I explain how that's really the tie that functionally binds the worldviews of millions of people today. It's the authority of the self rather than the authority of God. And when you have that authority of the self, that means that people will believe all kinds of things. People believe different things about, uh, you know, spiritual energy located in mountains and psychics and reincarnation and the nature of God. People have all kinds of different beliefs that I talk about in the book. But at the end of the day, there is something that's in common across all of them with this authority of the self. And so the four tenets that I identified that you read, those are basically the commonalities across all people who are looking to themselves as the authority, regardless of their other beliefs. So for example, feelings are the ultimate guide. If you're the authority on what's true, then how are you going to determine that? Your feelings. Your feelings are going to guide you. And so when we hear these statements that are so common today, like be your authentic self and you be you and follow your heart, these aren't just cutesy little things that people say. These are hardcore worldview statements. They're making really big, deeply rooted statements about the nature of reality. They're saying you follow your heart. Whatever you feel like doing is what's going to be true for you. No, there's one objective truth when it comes to what is real, and it's not about how you feel. That said, feelings are good. God gives us feelings, right? Sometimes people hear me talk about this and they say, wait a second, are, does that mean that feelings are bad? No, your feelings are important, but they have to be calibrated. They have to be calibrated to what is true. So we always want to measure our feelings against God's word. The second tenet is happiness. Happiness is the ultimate goal. So authority of the self, your feelings are going to guide you where are they going to guide you. They're going to guide you to whatever you think makes you happy. And in a secular perspective, that is, that's what we hear everywhere today. Anything you want to do, as long as it makes you happy, it's assumed everyone needs to come alongside you and pat you on the back and say, well, as long as you're happy, I'm happy for you. This is not a biblical worldview. As Christians, and this is where a lot of Christians do really get confused today. As Christians, we don't necessarily want for someone what they happen to think makes them happy. Because sometimes people's subjective feelings about what makes them happy don't line up with what God has for them that's actually best. And so God's objective best for someone, as revealed in his word, is going to be the best thing that you can do to help someone out. So by sharing truth with them, love rejoices in truth. By sharing truth with them, even if they might not feel happy, subjectively speaking, that you have shared a truth from the Bible with them, you're still doing the right thing because you are sharing God's best for them. So it's a really important distinction. And for Christians, it's not that God wants us to be unhappy, but he has such bigger plans and purposes for us. Happiness is rooted in your very subjective circumstances, whereas joy is something that is rooted in the objective knowledge and love of our Savior in Jesus Christ. Those are different things. The third tenet of secularism is judging. Judging is the ultimate sin. Yeah, that's so a no-no, right? <laughs> yes. You don't want to you don't want to judge anybody. That's so common today. Everyone says, "Hey, don't judge me." Right? You're coming you're coming alongside me. It, and that's the thing. It, it makes total sense from a secular worldview why someone would say, "Hey, judging is a really awful thing." Because if it were true that the authority is you on all things, then it would be ridiculous for someone to come along and say you should or shouldn't do something. Because when someone comes along and says that, 
you would say, well, what do you mean I should or shouldn't do this? I'm the authority. I, you don't know how I feel. You don't know what's going to make me happy. I'm the boss in this situation, right? So that's why they see judging as a sin. This is another area where Christians tend to get confused because a lot of Christians say, well, I'm not going to be the judge. I don't want to judge anyone. I don't want to judge anything. I'm just going to love on people. Well, we need to get some clarity on that because love often involves being able to judge with right judgment as Jesus says. So in Matthew 7, 1, Jesus says, do not judge or you too will be judged. Well, people stop right there and they think that Jesus is saying we should never judge people. But what he's really saying in that, it's a, it's a preface to a whole passage where he's saying, don't judge hypocritically. He says, take the log out of your eye so that you can see clearly to take the speck out of someone else's eye. He, he doesn't say take a log out of your eye and walk away. The whole purpose of taking the log out of your eye, if you're guilty of the same thing, is so you can help somebody else in the same way. And so when by judging, we mean discern by, between what is right and wrong, we are absolutely 100% supposed to judge between what's right and wrong. That is called discernment. And so you're not being judgmental in some kind of bad way as a Christian when you're simply sharing the message of what God has already said. If someone comes along and says, well, how dare you say that this is morally right or wrong for me? How would you know? You're just saying, don't shoot the messenger. I'm telling you what God has already said. And that is a kind of judgment that Christians should not be afraid to make. Judge with right judgment, as Jesus said. And the final tenet of secularism is that God is the ultimate guess. Sometimes people think it's, I'm saying guest, but no T, just a guess. And what that means is that in secular culture, it's perfectly okay, normally speaking, for you to believe in God. So if you're on a high school campus, and you tell someone, yeah, I believe in God. If you go no further than that statement, they're probably going to be okay with you. They're probably going to say, oh, okay, cool, whatever. Not think much about it. But the reason for that is that as long as God remi remains this comfortable guess that it's, you know, well, I think this and you think this and we're all okay. And we're not making any big claims on each other's lives. As long as you do that, it's okay. Because now you're not threatening the authority of the self. You're not telling somebody, hey, you're not the boss. You're just saying, yeah, I kind of believe in God. Where people get offended is when you say, not only do I believe in God, but I believe that he's given us so much evidence that we can be confident in who he is because he has revealed these truths in the Bible. And because he's revealed these truths in the Bible, we know who God is. We know who we are as people. We know about our relationship. We know what's required of us. We know what God has done for us. We know how we should respond. When you say that, now you're offending people. Now the message gets, gets offensive because you're not just talking about a generic God. You are talking about a specific God who has the true authority and not you. Really helpful, Natasha. Um, thanks for walking us through that framework. I think people can feel that just that that really is the the water we're swimming in. And just had to, remember, you talk about um, happiness. I and how you know we're not always just going for what people think will make them happy. We're going for what we know is true. And what will, of course, bring ultimate joy, uh, but that may be different than their short-term happiness. I remember trying to share Christ with a guy at the airport one time, and we were having a great conversation and building a little rapport and took a step to try to share Christ with them. And it was the, it was like the most awkward, passive-aggressive shutdown I've probably ever had. He's like, oh, 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 it, isn't this so sad? He's like... We were having such a nice conversation and my day was going so well. And then you just tried to do that. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. And he just walks away and you're like, wow, I, 
I guess I just rained on your parade. I, I'm sorry I tried to offer you the hope of Jesus, man. And uh, But, you know, it really did commit one of those sins that you just described. But Natasha, I mean, the I think if we're honest, I, and I love how you kind of got at this in the book, there's something about that framework that really is actually compelling to even Christians today. I mean, there's something about this framework that if we're not careful, it can actually tug at our heart. Uh, it can tug at our mind. Uh, and it must be that, that that's the case because, I mean, if the if we're failing at the broad level of passing the biblical worldview test that, you know, your data shows that as Christians today we are, um, there's, there's a problem there. Could you help kind of unpack for us what you see as some of the, the pull towards some of these beliefs and even some of the push, uh, you know, out from historic biblical Christianity towards some of these beliefs as well? Well, if you think about the nature of secularism being rooted in the authority of the self, then that's really what we want to ask. Why are we so attracted to that? And, you know, we we could theoretically be surrounded by all kinds of worldviews that we don't find compelling, right? I think a lot of times we don't think about that. We just assume that we're being pressured by the world. But if we were surrounded by people who worshiped aardvarks, for example, maybe we would be like, okay, that's fine. They're they're worshiping aardvarks. I'm not interested in that. I'm not, I'm not going toward that. I'm not confusing my biblical worldview. You have your aardvarks. I'm going to share truth with you, but I'm not going to be confused by your aardvarks. That's not happening. So you're right. We have to ask the question, well, what's so compelling about the worldview we're actually surrounded by today? And I find this question really interesting because when you really get to the heart of secularism and you identify it as the authority of the self, the Bible tells us why that is so compelling. So the Bible tells us that our, by our very human nature, we want to go our own way. We are in rebellion to God. Like I said earlier, Ephesians talks about how we're all by nature children of wrath who want to follow our own desires and cravings of the flesh. So as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit to help us with that, but it doesn't mean that we're never tempted by the authority of the self. We are actually always tempted to go our own way. And, you know, when I talk about this in front of audiences and I say, hey, how many people here, even after you became a Christian, have sometimes wanted to go your own way? <laughs> Raise your hand. Everyone raises their hand. So this is, a, this is a universal experience. And so when we start to understand that this worldview that we're surrounded by today is the one that by our very human nature, we find so compelling and we do want to go our own way. And the Bible tells us that, then we start to understand why we're seeing that drift. And I love the illustration that you gave earlier. You know, why are we seeing that drift in the first place? Because we're not realizing why it's so compelling. Once you start understanding, this is what we're being confronted with. And then you have sort of a filtering mechanism, which is what I call those four tenets of secularism to better identify it. Then we can stay more clear because then you start to see this everywhere. I, I teach my, my kids this, and I've encouraged many people to teach their, their families this. When you think of it in terms of the feelings are the guide, happiness is the goal, judging is the sin, and God is the ultimate guess, you start to see that mentality everywhere. And then you can stand more firmly yourself when you understand what you're looking at. That's great. And I, I think you've just probably also had half our audience go to Google to figure out how do you spell aardvark and what is one anyway? But I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to know that uh, I'm not the only one that feels no draw toward that aardvark worldview that you described. But thanks for that um, those comments. That's helpful too, because you think about, we can think about the pressures as only out there in the world, and they are out there in the world. But when you say, okay, all of this comes under this authority of the self, and we all want to be king of our own life and our own world, man, that actually makes me have to think, okay, look at my own heart uh, for that own selfish, self-promoting tendency that we can all have. 
that could be actually leading me astray. And that, that makes me look a lot closer to home. And I think that's really helpful. Uh, Natasha, you talk, uh, I want to get to two more sections of your book, kind of, kind of coming off of that thought of the worldview that's around us that we can actually feel a pull to and a draw toward. Uh, you describe the experience of doubt that can be common to believers throughout all time, throughout all ages and history. And I know that's a that's a big thing. There could be students listening to the show even today that uh, they're doing the hard work of trying to share Christ with students at their public schools or in their neighborhoods, uh, but they're actually feeling the draw, and they're actually they just know it. They're they're not even sure whether they are believe in the right things or they think they are, but they have some nagging doubts in the back of their mind. Uh, I know when I was in high school, I sure did. I was involved in you know, like street evangelism. We were going out and sharing the gospel and truly believed the faith. But man, I'd get some questions sometimes from some, I remember some Swiss old guy that was an atheist and man, he hit me with some zingers and you go back and you're like, man, I believe this stuff, but I don't know how to answer that guy and that's driving me crazy. Uh, but you give some really helpful uh, tips on dealing with doubt. Um, I wanted just to highlight one or two of them and then ask if you could give us a little bit more to unpack that. Um, but you say, first, be honest with yourself and the nature of truth. Could you just share a little bit more about that? Yeah. And, and just b before I dive into that one, I would just say as a big picture response to that, that it, it's totally normal to have doubts about anything because we don't, when when you don't have some kind of mathematical certainty, when you're talking about the kinds of issues that we're talking about, if you're intellectually honest with yourself, then no matter what you believe, if you're an atheist or a Muslim or a Jew or a Mormon or a Christian, there are going to be unanswered questions in your worldview. And so it's totally unrealistic to think that the goal is to no longer have any doubts ever, because no matter what you end up believing, there will be unanswered questions from that worldview perspective. No one has every answer. From the Christian's perspective, we don't have the mind of God, so we don't know every single thing that we would like to know. And some of us, like me. I'm very type A. I want answers to everything. And it, it does bother me. I wish that I could just have like, you know, a frequently asked questions to look up, you know, the things that I want to know from the mind of God, but it doesn't work like that. So we have to work with, with what we have, but it, it's just important. I think for students to understand that it's totally normal to have doubts about things, to have questions about things, because as human beings, that's part of our experience. Faith doesn't mean we take a leap in the dark, but it does mean that we have to take a step based on all the evidence that we have. And there is tons and tons of great evidence for the truth of Christianity. So if you're having doubts, the, the first thing that I would say is that you that truth has nothing to fear. So if Christianity is true, it's not going to just buckle under the weight of your questions. And so understand what apologetics is, like I said, making case for and defending the truth of Christianity. If you have doubts, search for answers, right? And that's where that number one point comes in, in terms of, um, you know, no, be honest with yourself about the nature of truth, because this is, this is not something where we're looking for a worldview that we like the best, that most people believe, that works the best for us, that costs us the least, we're not looking for any of those things. If we're honest, we should want to believe what's true, what corresponds with reality. That's what truth is by definition. It's what corresponds to reality. And so be honest with yourself about that. And if you're having doubts, make sure that your doubts are of the right nature. Because if you're just doubting because, well, everybody around me thinks something else, or I don't really like what the Bible says on some of the issues that people are pushing me on, well, is that a reason to doubt? 
not not necessarily. It might be a reason to ask more questions to better understand yourself, but just be honest with yourself about the nature of truth that you want to pursue what is true, not what you like the best or not what you want to be true, but what is actually true. I think that's the number one most important thing to have that guiding question correct. Yeah, and you know when you think about your own heart and you think about the problem of the human heart, I mean if you can really come to grips with the fact that man, I my heart is a sinful heart and it does lead me places where it shouldn't, then hopefully it wouldn't come as a surprise to us. Or maybe we'd even think that, well, of course, what's true will at times be different than what I would like it to be true, because what I would like is sometimes not really good, but it's that sometimes in the moment you, you do feel the pull on that. Um, Natasha, you gave another one that I thought was so helpful. Um, I think it was like your ninth one. So like we're skipping over seven other really helpful principles. So anybody that really is in that uh, experience of uh, maybe having tough questions for your faith, one more reason you got to buy Natasha's book and read all nine helpful tips. But your ninth (laughs) one you talked about, um, why don't you just go ahead and be clear on your alternatives? So if you're not sure that, you know, what you believe is true, that's fine to say that. But then it will also be helpful to you to name what alternatives there are. And could you talk more about why that's a helpful practice in your mind? I think this is so important. Maybe I shouldn't have put it at number nine because I agree with you. Well, this it's is a, a really good clincher. important one. <laughs> but there are a lot of important ones there. So, um, it, you know, not, not necessarily in that order. But yeah, it, it's so important to understand, like, what do you now believe? Because I think a lot of young people, especially today, what I see in deconstruction movements and the, the things that are going along uh, along those lines is that people are really happy to turn their back on Christianity when they decide, you know, I don't like this anymore. I don't like what the Bible says. I don't think the Bible's true. Whatever the reason is, um, setting aside that motivation, when they walk away, they're not doing very much to think about, well, what do I now believe? What is it that I believe to be true about the world? And so they're kind of sitting in just this very gray zone of putting together whatever kind of makes sense to them at the time. But a lot of times those pieces don't even fit coherently together. So, you know, for example, a lot of people in this deconstruction movement, what they're doing is they're turning away from Christianity because they think it's toxic and they think it's harmful and it's oppressive and and all these other things. But yet they're hanging on to a belief that God exists and that God is love. He loves everyone. Justice is really important. We want to love others. Um, And, you know, certainly Jesus would not have been judgmental and certainly Jesus would never have preached about hell and certainly Jesus this or that. So they actually have some really specific beliefs and yet they have no objective basis for having those beliefs. Because if the Bible isn't God's word, we know from the Bible, it says that everyone has access to knowing that God exists, that the creator of the universe created what we see, right? We know this from the Bible. So they could know that this God exists. But for them to have all of these claims about who God is without having a Bible, any kind of objective basis to go off of, they have no idea if God is love. Maybe the God that exists is not a God of love. Maybe he didn't create everyone equal. Maybe he doesn't care about justice. Maybe he's not just by nature. You wouldn't know if you don't have an objective basis in some kind of revealed scripture. So we have a ton of people walking around today who claim to be spiritual but not religious, and they're holding on to all these beliefs that are really just leftovers from the Bible. They're the parts that they like and they want to carry forward, and they have absolutely no basis for believing those things. It is because of the Bible that we believe in the equality of all people, because the Bible tells us that everyone is made in the image of God, for example. It's the Bible that gives us the attributes of God, that God has revealed that He is loving and that He is just and does care about justice. Those things come from 
the revealed word of God, not from just looking around at nature. And so I think it's really interesting because coming back to the original question, when you say, well, what are you walking to? Do your new beliefs make sense? A lot of the times today they don't, but people aren't even stopping to think about that. So if you're checking out atheism or you're checking out being a progressive Christian or you're checking out being a Mormon, whatever you're looking at, be sure to actually look at it and consider, are these beliefs true? Like we talked about before, and how would I know if they're true? Am I just assuming what I want to assume about God because this is the part of the Bible that I liked? Those are real honest questions you have to ask yourself. Yeah, and I think uh, just to maybe put a fine point on the end of that, to maybe not only look at the alternatives and name them, but then to be uh, as tough on those alternatives as you might be being on your own beliefs. I mean, uh, one of my professors at Biola uh, had the, the advice, be as hard on your doubts as you are on your beliefs. And I'd never heard that before. I thought, oh, I, That's great. why didn't somebody tell me that two years ago? Because you've kind of felt like to be really you know, intellectually honest with your faith. You got to ask all the hard questions about your faith and you should. Uh, but then, okay, be as hard on your doubts as you are on your faith or name your alternative, al the alternate beliefs that you could hold, but then ask as hard of questions about those as you are about, you know, what you grew up, you know, believing from Sunday school, right? And I think that can save you a lot of heartache as well. And Natasha, you have so much um, advice in your your book that I'd love for you to just to close a couple uh, principles for young people today in terms of just guarding our hearts and minds in the truth. Um, you talk about, I think, three tips I'd love to just share and then give you the final word to say as much about these as you'd like to. But you say, hey, remember that, you know, the nicest sounding beliefs are not always the right beliefs. Uh, that's good. Uh, godly humility doesn't require, you know, indecision about our beliefs. Uh, you can be humble and actually believe things with confidence and that the cure for culture disagree cultural disagreement will be to never compromise the truth. I'd love just to give you the final word, expand on any of those or any other advice that you'd have for young people today on how they can keep their hearts and minds rooted in the truth of God's word. I, you know, I think honestly, for young people, the most important one of those is that the nicest sounding beliefs aren't necessarily the right beliefs. I think this is where Christians are really getting confused today, because when we have all these cultural issues, everyone comes back to this idea, and by everyone, I mean secular culture around us, comes back to this idea that, you know, love is all that matters. We just want to be loving. We're going to love people. Christians aren't loving. Christians are harmful and toxic, oppressive, like I said earlier. The question that you have to keep coming back to, though, is not how nice does this sound or how compassionate does this sound, but asking what does it actually mean? We have to get away from just these nice platitudes and understand that people are talking right past each other. If someone says, well, you know, my religion's love or I just believe in love, love is what matters. I'm just going to love on people, unlike Christians. Ask, what do I mean by love? How do you define love? Because that is what everything hinges on in these cultural difficult conversations that are happening today. So for a Christian, Jesus kind of answered this because when he was asked, what, what is the greatest commandment? He says the two greatest commandments are these. Number one is to love God with all your heart and your mind and your soul. And the second commandment is to love others. There's a hierarchy there. And that's really important to understand. 
when Jesus said the greatest commandment, that's the number one is to love God. So what does it mean to love others? That second commandment, that's informed by what it means to love God. So a secular culture that's not looking to God and his revealed word as their authority, they're just going to define what love means on their own terms. But that's completely subjective. You have no objective basis for that. Why love in that way? Why does love mean that and not something else? How are you going to break the tie if there's no authoritative God who's telling you what it means to love? But as Christians, we know, we know from the Bible what it means to love because we understand what it means to love God. And because he has revealed what is morally good and true and beautiful, we look to that and we know that to love others means to rejoice in that truth and be able to share that truth with them. So don't get fooled. I guess it would be my uh, <laughs> my biggest advice to young people. Don't be fooled by the words that culture uses around you. Learn to ask the question, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that word of love? And loving doesn't mean affirming everything. Love means to love people the way that God would love them. That's the best you can do. It's much better than trying to love someone on your own terms because God knows what's best, not you. That uh, is a great word to end on. Well, Natasha, thank you so much for being here, taking time out of your busy schedule of writing, speaking, raising a family of your own. Uh, how can anybody uh, listening today follow more of your work? I have a website where it's kind of the hub for everything. It's natashacrane.com and crane is spelled C-R-A-I-N, not like the bird. Natasha Crane, C-R-A-I-N. We'll put that in the show notes as well. Uh, you have two podcasts. Tell us about those real quick. Yeah, one is just my name, the Natasha Crane Podcast, and the other one is with Elisa Childers, who's another author and speaker, and it's called Unshaken Faith. And that one is just a 15-minute weekly podcast where we talk about cultural issues from a biblical worldview. Well, again, everybody, uh, make sure whatever you do, buy Natasha's book, Faithfully Different, or have your parents buy it for you. And Natasha, you also have an Unshaken tour. I know we, our staff were excited to be at one of your events earlier this year. I know maybe you haven't released dates and locations yet, but how could anybody uh, maybe have a chance to see you in their area next year? Yeah, well, we've done four Unshaken conferences this year, and we're really excited because we're doing four more next year. We have not released the dates and locations, but we're getting really close. Uh, but you can go to unshakenconference.com, and that is Elisa Childers, myself, and Frank Turk who are speaking at those. And it's just a one-day conference throughout the country where we're just working to equip Christians with a better understanding of how to stand firm for their faith in today's culture. Well, Natasha, thank you again for being here. Keep charging ahead. Thank you for all you do. Thank you so much, and thank you for all you do as well. 